Now the rule is it doesn't matter if you invented it first, it's a race to the patent office, the first to file. But it's still the first inventor to file. So you still have to be an inventor to file something. You can't take somebody else's idea and file it if you're not the inventor. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show that teaches you and other busy pros how to grow your wealth so you can live life on your own terms. I'm your host, Taylor Loaf. Our guest today is Vincent Latempio. Patent laws, copyright questions, and trademarks can be confusing. Who do you trust to help you wade through all the information and understand the complexity of it all? Vin Latempio, a registered patent attorney, and in the firm of Klaus Stenger and Latempio, helps clients untangle the web of intellectual property law. As a registered patent attorney, Latempio works with high-end corporate clients and inventors with a new idea they have never marketed, manufactured a product, and everyone in between, all the whole range of experience. He writes patent applications, counsels on branding trademarks, and has the ability to litigate infringement cases. As a corporate IP consultant and lecturer, he trains inventors and corporate employees to identify intellectual property. As an inventor consultant, Vin can analyze new inventions to determine feasibility of patentability and commercialization. He's appeared on the History Channel's Million Dollar Genius as the attorney for Wayne Fromm, the inventor of the selfie stick. Now, that's that's a big one right there. Vin also co-wrote Patent Fundamentals for Scientists and Engineers, which takes the reader from an idea's conception through the steps of patent protection. That's a should be an area of interest for many of our listeners who have a product idea and are interested in bringing it to market, but want to make sure they do it properly and they create a sustainable competitive advantage. And I know we've got a lot of folks out there listening that, that want to learn more. So Vin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to get in front of your listeners. Very happy to speak with you. And and you know, before we were talking, I mentioned that you know I took a class in patent law and when I was in college, and I barely made it through. So this is a good opportunity for me to kind of brush up on things. And you know, something that did stick with me was the difference between trademarks and copyrights. But I see a lot of people making that mistake out there. The difference between trademarks and copyrights. Can you? Explain that to us and give me a refresher and explain to our listeners. Yeah, sure. You know, I have a Coca-Cola bottle sitting on my desk right now, and I use that as a teaching tool for new inventors. Like you said, I have corporate clients and the mother with the new baby bottle nipple and everything in between. And the Coca-Cola bottle is a great example of all different types of intellectual property. First, it's a bottle. It's a container that holds a liquid, and that would be a utility patent, you know, uh, what it does. Um, just the look of the bottle itself would be a design patent. So you can get a patent on the look of something, not necessarily on the function of it, just the aesthetic look of it. So you could um, stop people from making a, a Coca-Cola bottle, but you can't stop them from making their own Pepsi bottle or 7-Up bottle. And I, you probably just pictured what those bottles look like in your mind. So that's that's the patent side of it. So it's design and utility, what it does. So obviously, if you can stop somebody from from making a bottle, a container that holds a liquid, it'll be a very powerful piece of intellectual property. But that's been around for a while, the bottle, but but that's just the example. The the trademark on the outside of the bottle is Coca-Cola or on the 
on the cap, it just says Coke with a circle R. So when you see that circle R on a product, you know it's been registered with the federal government and it's a registered trademark. And a trademark, they call it a, um, a source indicator. So it allows the consumer to know the source of the product. So when I walk into Dick's Sporting Goods, when I buy a pair of Adidas, I know that Nike or nobody else could put that mark on that uh, sneaker. And I'm protected as the consumer and I'm protected as the manufacturer because I build goodwill through putting Nike on everything. I was watching football yesterday. I noticed every NFL team and all their coaches have that Nike swoosh someplace on their uniform, which is a very powerful brand indicator, the source of the person that, that manufactured made those products. Copyright is more like a, a work of art. An artist, you know, you copyright the photograph or a book, an author, you know, a statue, a sound recording. Those are copyrights. I, I argue that the Coca-Cola bottle is a pretty statue, but actually, if you try to get a copyright on a bottle, they wouldn't let you do it because it's a functional item. You need to get a patent on the functional item. So if you had a pair of scissors or a glass, you couldn't get a copyright on that because it's a functional item. Unless there was something they call it uh, separable, you know, separable from it. So there was a case where a woman's uniform was trying to get a copyright on it. But on the uniform, a picture of a butterfly was there. And um, so the, the court held that the butterfly was separable. It could be a copyright. It's a work of art. So the, the copyright isn't into the whole uniform, but that separable part. So maybe if you had that Coca-Cola bottle and you painted a, a design on it, that could be a uh, copyright. You know, there could also be a copyright if you have a, a logo and somebody created that logo for you, they would own the copyright. So a lot of times, one of the first questions I ask trademark clients, I say, you know, who actually painted this logo for you? Who did it? Did you do it yourself? Because the person who creates it and puts it into a tangible form owns the copyright. And the only way to transfer the rights of a copyright is through a written agreement. It's called a work for hire agreement. So you hire them to work to create this logo for you, and they're gonna, and that person who creates it is going to transfer their intellectual property rights and that copyright over to you, the owner of it, who paid for it to be done. Now, if you didn't have that contract, and it was just a handshake, or you just paid him twenty dollars and he drew it up for you, he would still own the copyright in that. So that's that's the copyright. One more thing about the Coca Cola bottle. The liquid on the inside, what's that? That's uh, a trade secret. So if somebody can't reverse engineer it, they can try to make a Pepsi-Cola, but it doesn't taste exactly the same, although I can't tell the difference. You can protect it by trade secret. So, you know, the Kentucky Fried Chicken trade secret for the recipe or the, the Big Mac recipe for the secret sauce is a trade secret. So, so that's why the Coca-Cola bottle is a great example. It helps you with the rudimentary ideas of what uh, is intellectual property. Okay. That makes some sense. Now, for the, say, basement inventor who has an idea for a product and it's going to be an awesome product, but um, they don't know whether they're starting, they should seek a, a patent or a trademark. Maybe they think it's more appropriate that they, you know, maybe it's a brand type of thing that should be going after a trademark or a copyright. I mean, is that something you can just go from zero to getting a registered trademark or do you have to be established like a Coca-Cola? Is there some kind of process there? You can file an application. It's called the intent to use in the future application for a trademark and you can preserve your rights in it so that somebody else doesn't you know, use it in the meantime. So you file that and you're, you're, it's the first to file 
with a patent. It's, it's very similar. They're not the same rules exactly for a trademark, but but yeah, usually with a trademark, you know, you gain common law rights the minute you start using it. You put a sign on the on the outside the door, or you put a uh, a label on a product and you start using it and you sell it. You have common law rights. People come to me, even lawyers saying, I want to trademark this. And I said, well, you trademark it when you start using it. Then what we do is we register it for you, the attorney. What an attorney does, he registers the trademark and puts everyone on the country in the country on notice that that's your trademark because you've registered it in the federal register. So it's, you don't get the trademark by filing it. You get the trademark by using it and by coming up with it. And then you preserve the rights by filing your application. So if you if you're actively using the mark in commerce, so in, and that's the the word of art, commerce in commerce. You see, the the Constitution gives the federal government the right to regulate the individuals of states through the Commerce Clause. So, in order to get a, a federally registered trademark, you have to be using the mark in commerce, and they define in commerce as interstate going, you know, business in between states. And you know, now with the internet, you put something on the Internet. The minute you have a website, you're interstate. You're inner the world. You know, you're you're throughout the whole world. So that usually isn't a problem. And then it probably takes them two to five months just to open your application before they assign oh, wow. it. And then the examiner will look at it and he'll do his own search to see if it's available. Nobody else has already registered it. And then he'll say, "Okay, you haven't used it. I'll give you six months from this date." So probably between eight and in a year before you actually have to actually put it on a product and start selling it. Now, if you're still not ready after that year, you can ask for an extension of time and you can ask for up to five extensions of time and each extension is six months. So you end up with about three years to actually use it. Of course, you know what happens in the meantime. You have to pay the government fee every time you ask for an extension. You have to pay my fee as the attorney to to do it. So it's not a, it's not free, but it's not that bad. I think it's just a few hundred bucks to, to ask for the extension. Um, with the total with our fees, you know, maybe four or five hundred. I'm not sure the exact number off the top of my head, but but that's the process. So you can protect it right from the get go if you're in love with this name and you want to make sure that it's available. A lot of people, you know, um, are afraid that I call it a, a sword and a shield. If same thing with the patent and the trademark, the sword is I can stop other people from using. It. I cut them off below their knees. The shield is if someone says, "Oh, you can't use that mark. That's mine. I have the." I have the registration. I, it's mine. You can't stop me from using it. That's my shield. So yeah, it's important to to do it. I I think the problem is from the get go from the the inventor in the basement that, that doesn't have a lot of money to spend is he's got to really determine where is the best money spent to move this project forward and to protect it. And it's that's not always easy to do. And patents and trademarks are not inexpensive uh, things. You know, especially patents are much more expensive than trademarks, but uh, it's around a thousand bucks I charge to file a trademark and the go- includes the government fee and our fees and, and a search. And we're pretty good at doing the searches. You know, the search for a trademark isn't just a knockout. Oh, do they have it? You know, is XYZ Corporation. It's the phonetic equivalent. It's, it's the term of art for trademarks is similarly confusing. Is it, is it likely, likelihood of confusion? Is it likely to confuse people in the in the industry or people, you know, just consumers as to who is the source of this product? So it's not identically the same. Like someone says, if I change the S to a Z or if I put an underscore, 
you know, would that make a difference? And they consider those phonetic equivalents or the equivalents and they're, they're still going to stop you from getting the, the trademark. So our, our trademark search is a little bit more in depth. It's not just a, a knockout search to see if it's there, but the knockout search itself is still valuable because if it knocks it out, you know, you're done. You know, the problem with any search is you're hoping that you don't find it. So you're searching for a negative and you can keep searching forever because if you don't find it, you know, you can just keep on searching. But if you do find it, you stop and you come up with another name. And probably the, the best time to change your name is right in the beginning before you have them on the shelves of a million places in the, in the universe and you got to take all these labels off it. That would be a bad time. So a good time is before you start producing anything to figure out if it's a, it's a good trademark or not. That's interesting. Now, as I recall from having paid attention to this a little bit over the years, there was a, a big change over in the, within the last few years. And we went from first to invent to first to file in patents. And I understand that, you know, from my very lay understanding, I understand that to be a very important change. Now, do a, well, number one, do I have the change right? Am I getting that right? And, you know, what impacts have you seen on the process and uh, and on the whole thing with that change in place yeah i think you have it pretty well you know the right way there you know you used to hear the um the poor man's patent you put it in an envelope and you mail it back to yourself well, you know why why was that important that was important because you can prove before that you were the first to invent it so if if i filed an application today and you filed it next month but you can prove that you invented it you know, last January because you mailed it to yourself. They used to say you could, um, it was swear back. It was a swearing back affidavit. I can swear the date back and say, look, I had it on this date. And I went into my lawyer's office. He's got a record that I had it on this day and I could be the first inventor to invent it. Now the rule is it doesn't matter if you invented it first, it's a race to the patent office, the first to file, but it's still the first inventor to file. So you still have to be an inventor to file something. You can't take somebody else's idea and file it if you're not the inventor. It's always been the rule, but of course, you know who's to say if they invented it or not, and how do you prove that? And I'd, I wouldn't want to get into that argument. I'd rather say I'm first to file and let them figure out who's the, who the inventor is. So now they have what's called a derivation proceeding. If you can prove that that person derived it from you, and most likely the scenario would be like you work for a big corporation like Sony or something or, or Apple and you quit and then you ran out and you filed it. You know, they can say, well, he derived it while he was working at Apple and all of a sudden he filed it. He derived it from us. So even though he filed it first, we still should get the patent and they, they would, you would have that fight. But, but essentially, I think, you know, your question is how does it affect everything? I think at the end of the day, whether you're the first inventor or you're the first one to file it, it's, it's a race to the patent office. And the first one in there, 99.9% .9 of the time is going to get the patent. So that really changed things up. And, and I think one of the big reasons why they did it is because just reciprocity with the rest of the world. We were one of the few countries left that was still using the old system. And now this kind of put us on par with the rest of the world. And that was a big reason why they did it. Hmm. That's interesting. That's quite the change. So are there any other recent large developments in the patent world, particularly, you know, we're having the digital revolution and everything. It's all great. But, you know, undoubtedly, nobody really thought of the problems that, you know, everything was going to present, you know, say 50, 60, 100, 200 years ago. 
what was going to happen with, you know, computers and phones and cryptocurrencies and everything, you know, what have we seen within the last year or two uh, related to, you know, developments of patent law? Yeah, I would say in like the last five years, and it's been changing even in the last year or two, there's like a bunch of cases about it. It's clearly on the business method end of of business of, of patents. And mostly those business methods are are apps, you know, all in the electronic world. And the Supreme Court has has come down with these cases, a whole series of them. And the, the original one was an Alice case, and there's the Bilski case. And basically what they're saying is that abstract ideas on their own isn't patentable, and you have to tie it to the real world somehow. So there's four types of patentable subject matter, right? Four different types. There's article of manufacture, like a pencil. There's a machine, you know, like a new computer. Composition of matter, like a new drug or alcohol, a new composition of matter. And then finally, the business methods. And the business methods came along in the 90s when a lot of these different business methods for picking stocks and, and, and you know, a lot of computer-generated models. And a lot of patents came out in the 90s and the 2000s. And, and then um, about four or five years ago, I'm not sure of the exact date, but these, these new cases came out where the Supreme Court basically says that if, it, if it's just happening within your phone, it's just happening within your computer, and all it's doing is making what you can do outside of the computer faster, easy. That's really just an abstract idea and it's not patentable. You have to tie it to something in the real world, like a machine or a transformation of matter. You have to move something around in the real world. So like the new Uber thing then Lyft that's going on, that's kind of changed the whole transportation industry. Those, there's a lot of patentable subject matters within those apps. And there's parts of it that, that aren't subject, you know, the general idea of it obviously isn't patentable. Otherwise, you know, um, Uber and Lyft couldn't simultaneously live together, you know, and, and, and operate together. But, but there's, there's parts of their app and parts of their um, technology that is patentable. And I think I was searching for the Uber patents and there was a bunch of them. They had a, they had a handful of patents on their technology. So that's been the biggest part. Unless you can show that you've used it in the outside, you know, something's happening outside that phone, or you actually solve some sort of industrial problem that's always been a problem, but it's not just doing something that they've always done before that was just happening outside of the computer. You can't get a patent. So that's been making it difficult. And, and a lot of the patents that were issued are being attacked now by their competition, like Sony and IBM are attacking their, their competitors' patents. And that's where you hear a lot of these, the patent wars that are going on. And I think, you know, it's, it's like anything, it goes like in, in stages, you know, it gets, they're really strict when it first comes out and then they, they lighten up on it. I think they're, we're kind of swinging back to lighten it up a little bit on it. But uh, I think the longest file I have in my portfolio that I take care of is a, is a computer program that we've been fighting for, for the years. And, and a big part of it is that the rules and the, and the examiners aren't even sure what the rules are. And, and we've been going back and forth and fighting over it, and it's it's been kind of brutal. And when people call me with their new app ideas, I I have to warn them right away that this is this is a like in flux in the industry right now. It's not nobody really knows how to how to work it, and they've tried different ways of doing it. And we've watched uh, you know even patent attorneys change different tactics and then get it, and then the patent office decides later that oh. We didn't like the way you're doing it, and we're you know we're not going to accept those type of claims anymore. So 
that's been the, the biggest change in the industry and that's the hardest part. And you know, it's probably the most exciting part of the industry too, all the all the, the ability to do everything for um, you know, remotely through the internet. There's 300 million subscribers to Amazon Prime right now. And those people are all buying stuff, right? And there's 400 million products on Amazon. And there's the ability to go to China. Anybody can make a connection in China or go anywhere in the world and manufacture something. And then you instantly have distribution through the mail and uh, marketing all set up for you with Amazon. And and if you looked at Amazon 15 years ago, it wasn't worth anything. And and who was who was the king of the road? It was you know Sears, Kmart, you know Macy's. Now they're all going bankrupt, and the ones that are still alive, the brick and mortars, aren't even close to the value of Amazon. And you know who would have thought, you know Amazon we were selling books that was going to turn into this monster? You know I, I don't know what they're valued at. It's something like 247 billion dollars or some crazy number. I think the highest like Sears was ever valued was like ten or eighteen billion. I mean, it's not even close to um, what's happening, and you know, exponentially, you know, as as far as the ability to sell product, and it's not just you know big manufacturers. It's it's the mom and pops that are able to put up their shops. I have a client that came in; they're selling a product through Amazon. And you know, four years ago they weren't selling anything. They both have normal jobs. You know, one's a teacher at at University of Buffalo, and one's a one you know does something else. And and I said, well, how did you start this this company? And they're I don't know. They're making you know seventy, eighty thousand dollars a month selling products on on Amazon, which I thought was pretty nice number. They said, well, our fourteen year old son had a homework assignment to go home and start a business online, and he started the business. We basically fired him, and we're taking over the business. <laughs> But that's just like one example, and it's it's not the exception. I mean, there's tons of people doing that right now. It's just it's really an exciting time to be an inventor. That's incredible. Okay, Vincent, what is the best investment you ever made? Well, I told you I never. I don't know if people know this, but I lost my arm when I was 18 years old. Whoa, no, or strike that, 12 years old, and then I got a a decent amount of money, and I've invested it when I was 18. And I basically just invested in the stock market. So the first thing I think about investments was just what I put it in the stock market. And I bought IBM, one of the first things I still own it. And a lot of people say, if you ever bought IBM and sold it, you're, no matter when you bought it or sold it, you're not happy. But uh, I think for me, it was I, I invested in the market and uh, just let it work for itself. And my father had told me when I first you know, started, you know, all your friends are going to have fancy cars and buy new um, hubcaps and nice clothes and diamond rings and stuff. And if you start spending your money, whatever it is, it's going to be gone before you know it. So I basically just made pretend I didn't have it. And believe it or not, I'm 58 years old. I still haven't touched any of it. <laughs> it's still sitting in the stock market. Although I did, uh, even though I haven't, and it didn't take any money out, but I bought myself a, a Tesla S and I've been driving that. And it's been my, my toy for the last couple of months that I've, I've been driving around with that. It's been kind of fun. But I'm more like uh, slow and steady wins the race, and I just put it in, you know, blue chip stocks and just let you know ride the highs and lows of the market, and and, and I've always done pretty well um, without taking big risks. Nice, and I like those Tesla cars anyway, so I definitely don't blame you for that. On the the other side of that, what is the worst investment you've ever made? 
Well, you know what? I always say, even if I lose money, you, you learn something. And and I've you know I've bought some stocks along the way that that kind of tanked in some. But you have to I think you have to have risk in your life to have that big success. So at the end of the day, I'm not afraid to take a risk. And and uh, like I said, my whole life I've been pretty much steady blue chippers, so nothing really has been you know really bad investment. But uh, I think if you want to ask me, what do I think? Uh, even just inventors, they they sometimes put themselves off out on a limb. I think even when you, if it doesn't become that successful thing, and I think if you're in it just for the money, you're probably in the wrong business. I always say if you're if you want to invent something, invent to make the world a better place. You know, try to clean up the coral reefs, or try to figure out how to, you know, to uh, take the carbon out of the smokestacks and use it for something positive, and not you know just to pollute our environment. You know. Or do something, and I'm sure if you invented that, you'd be, you know, rich beyond your all, all your dreams of avarice. But but you'd still make the world a better place. So at the end of the day, even if you you invest it and it doesn't come out successful and you're not making money, I think you you still learn and you, and you still you know you're living your life and doing what you want to do and 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 going forward. So so I'm not afraid to lose money. I'm not afraid to take a chance on on you know certain things. Of course, I'm never gonna. Put it all up on on one roll of the dice in Las Vegas. It's just not my nature. But uh, but not to be afraid to fail. I think uh, there's an old saying by Shakespeare in the in the Julius Caesar play. In the when the the lady says to Julius Caesar, "Be beware of the Ides of March," and, it, and Julius Caesar's wife says, "Don't go, don't go." And he says, "If I don't go, you know, I'll die a thousand deaths every time I'm afraid. But if I I go, I only die I only die once. So I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to." Live with courage, and if if it kills me, so be it. I'm only going to die one death. Wow, that's a good point. I like that. I had forgotten about that. That's a good one. What is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? Well, like I said, it's slow and steady, and stay with the true and the try. You know, and but as far as like helping inventors, I I always say there's, and I say the same thing to my kids. There's three things you you have to do. In this business, you have to be able to be street smart. You have to be book smart, and you have to network. You have to just find out as much information as you can and meet as many people as you can and see if that—and not synchronicity, but um, you know, the working together with somebody else is you—you you have a higher goal. I'm losing the my mind as far as the um, you know, what's what's it when you two people work together and the sum of the parts are greater than the parts themselves? Synergy. Synergy. Yeah, the synergy of. Of working with other people, I mean that's the, I think that's the key, and being able to to meet as many people as far as learning whatever you have to do. And they say if you spend one hour a day for a year, you can be an expert on anything. So, but I think that one hour is just meeting people, asking questions, asking as many questions as you can to as many people, and figuring out the best way you know to do something to to solve the problem. Um, and that's you know I, I asked one of the inventors that I had the other day. You know, how do you solve these problems? What do you what do you do to, to when you come up? Well, he says first you have to identify the problem, whatever the problem is. You have you have to acknowledge in your heart that you're going to fix this problem, whatever it is. You're going to fix it. You know, make make the doorknob you know work better, whatever your idea is. And then you put together all the facts of why the doorknob's not working the way it's supposed to work. And then and then you basically you go through all the different methods to fix it, and then you pick the best one. So, and the only way you can do that is by asking question after question after question. And, you know, 
there's so many quotes that go along with that. I think Einstein, you know, said, you know, that, you know, ask as many questions as possible. And, and Thomas Edison said, well, when I, when I invent something and I fail 99,000 times and I, I finally succeed on the last thing, I still learn 99,000 ways that didn't work. So I learned something on each one of those things that t- each time it didn't work. Hmm. A lot of wisdom in there. Where can our listeners get in touch with you and how can they learn more if they've you know, got their product idea or their brand idea and they want to just hit the ground running? Yeah, I put up a YouTube channel. It's called Patent Home. And if you just search my name, I'm sure it'll come up, Vincent Latempio, or even just Patent. I think I come up on the front page someplace. And I have about 40 videos just asking and answering basic frequently asked questions, FAQs. They're all like a minute long, so they're not going to kill you. When I first started to do it, I think I was like in an interview phase and I was doing like 15 minute videos and I have 35, 40,000 views on some of the videos, but it's, it's a free place. I'm not, it's not like advertisements for myself. It's just basically answering basic questions about patent and trademark law. And I'm easily, you can get a hold of me at 716-853-1111, 716-853-1111. I have a bunch of 800 numbers on the internet. I guess they're just used to track me, but but a couple of them actually ring right to my cell phone. If you call one of those, you can probably get right to me on the phone. I sometimes question my sanity about putting it right to my cell phone, but but I uh, I talk directly to a lot of inventors, and they're even surprised when I pick up the phone sometimes. So you can do that. And yeah, if you just type in my name and patent, I, I got a pretty good uh, presence on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and all those social media places. Great. And, and, and links to that will all be in the show notes if folks want to check it out. And I, you know, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been nice to get a refresher on all of these topics. And I'm sure the listeners out there who have these great ideas and really want to move forward with you know, exploring a patent or trademark or copyright, whatever might apply to their business. I'm sure they got quite a bit and I hope they follow up with you, pick up a copy of the book and uh, check out your YouTube channel. And, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. If you're enjoying the show, please introduce us to a friend, bring them in and uh, let's help them grow their wealth passively along the side. For now, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. Again, I want to thank you for tuning in and we'll talk to you on the next one. 